if you're facing some drastic changes in your life, or maybe you realize you need to make some changes in your life, this episode is going to speak to you in a very profound way. It's actually part two of an interview I did with Tom Conrad. He's a friend of mine who's gone through addiction with drugs and alcohol and into recovery. And in the first episode, 167, you should go back and listen to it before listening to this if you haven't yet, deals with understanding when you need to make a change. And this episode deals with how that change is made. This is for you regardless of whether you're dealing with addictions or not. Please don't let that stop you from learning from this episode. If you know somebody who is dealing with addiction or maybe who's going through that right now, please share this with them. This will be profound. There are so many wonderful things for all of us to learn in this episode, whether it's facing changes in our life and the fears we deal with, whether we can force people to change and the fears we deal with when it's time to change. This is for you. I hope you'll listen all the way through and Reach out to me. Give me some feedback. I want to know if it made a difference in your life. All right, let's dig into it right now. I'm Desmond, and this is your Mental Mastery Monday. This podcast is about success for failures. Failures like me, who grew up in a world that valued conformity over creativity. People like me, who have been made to feel like failures in the corporate structured world of education and the cubicle littered world of business. This podcast is a misfit's guide to discovering, pursuing, and achieving our infinite creative purpose. So welcome home. Let's change the world around us by changing the world within us. Wow, you have a lot you're going to experience in this episode. It's going to be fantastic. I can't wait to jump into it. First, I want to invite you to come hang out with me in San Diego in October, at the end of October, the 28th, 29th, and 30th. I am going to be there for an event that will change your life. It's called Thrive, Make Money Matter. And we're going to be talking with people like Jack Canfield, John Asaraf. James Altucher, Pat Flynn, uh, all kinds of wonderful people who are going to teach you not only how to make a tremendous amount of money in your life, but not just that for the sake of buying stuff, but how to use that to change the world. If you have a cause that's important to you, this may be how you propel that cause, how you change the world in a certain area. It's called Thrive Make Money Matter. It's in October. It's in San Diego. It's very affordable, and I'm about to make it even more affordable. Go to attendthrive.com. Use the promo code DESMOND, my name, D-E-S-M-O-N-D, and you will save 20% off of your ticket price. And let me know you're coming. I would love to hang out with you, get to know you, and let's go through this experience together. I was in Las Vegas last year for the first Thrive, and I'm co-organizing this event again this year. It is going to be phenomenal. I know everything that's going into this. It is going to change your life. Attend Thrive.com and use promo code Desmond. You'll get 20% off of your ticket price. All right. Let's jump into this episode. I'm telling you, I don't care what you're dealing with in your life. I don't care what changes you are facing, what changes you should be facing. This interview, and I don't do interviews normally, 
ever. I've never done them until the last episode. This is part two. This interview will help you in so many ways. You're going to gain insight into what you're dealing with as you face the reality of needed changes, the fears you're going to struggle with, uh, whether people can force you to change, how we can keep others from changing by enabling them. We're going to talk about addictions of all sorts, the 12 steps, where they where they fit into your life. Even if you're not dealing with addiction, it is going to be fantastic. So l- let me catch up in case you, you, you've forgotten the first episode. Tom started drinking at 13 Zimas ugh, when he was a kid and with his friends. Ended up uh, spending most of his day sitting at a bar. He parked his car behind the bar so people in the community wouldn't know he was there. He was holding down a job. He had graduated college. He was a good kid, but he was drinking. And when he wasn't drinking, he had to cope with the withdrawals from alcohol. So he was taking benzos, some prescription drugs that were uh, helping him deal with that. Uh, his dad, he, he, he said, was enabling him in a loving way, like most people do when they're enabling and it didn't start to crumble apart, Tom, until you got to the point where you had gotten into an accident. You totaled your car pretty much. You worked at a car dealership. You told them some crazy story about a deer running out in front of you. You think maybe they believed they, they knew otherwise. Anyway, they give you a rental car. You're getting to work a, a, the same day. The same day you woke up from a blackout and found your car wrecked in the front driveway. You end up at the bar again, staying there, parking that rental car around the back where you used to park your car. And, and, and you're doing that again the same day. And then a week, within a week, you're driving home and you get busted on a, on a DUI. And you blew a .33. A .33, well, I mean, seriously, that, that, that'll, that you could die. And, and, and you end up going straight to the hospital. Your dad gets you out. He loves you. But he's done, and, and uh, he's just sick of you. It's not sick of you, but sick of it. And he decides, we've got to change it. I, I mean, did I, did I get everything into that synopsis? You hit all the points that needed to be hit. All right, the big points. All right, Tom, so that's where we're at with this. You're now on a plane, and uh, you had said you're going to recovery in South Florida, and... You, I've always heard that you can't can't force someone into recovery. You can't. I know that in Florida you can. I forget what it's called. It's something act where you can two family members can go to court and say this person's really messed up and they need recovery. I, I don't know how often that's successful when you you force someone into it. And you were kind of forced into it. Yeah, so what you're talking about is you're talking about the Marchman Act Marchman, and the Baker yeah. Act. Yeah, Baker and Marchman. So the yeah. Baker Act is going to be where somebody's of a harm to themselves mm-hmm. or suicidal. Right. The Marchman Act is if they're going to be harmed to themselves or others as a way of drugs or alcohol. Right, yeah. And both of them are there yeah that's it's exactly what you said. It's a it's trying it's forcing somebody into mm-hmm. the legal system um I gotta think it fails most of the time. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's it's a broken system. Yeah, unfortunately, it's know. a sad reality. Is it doesn't happen until somebody's ready for it to happen, and that's so painful for yeah. family members. Yeah, just waiting, like waiting, waiting, waiting. When is it going to happen? When are they going to hit the? And each time you think, oh, there they got a DUI. That's the bottom, and it's not. Oh, they crashed their car. That's it. That's the bottom, and it's not. 
Yeah. That kills families, man. Yeah. It's, just, oh, it's so painful. Yeah. Insane. So why did it work for you? You got basically forced into treatment. Well, you know, I got I got forced in, but it was not everybody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I, I'm going to stop. You know, I'm done. Now, people do. There's people that stumble into Alcoholics Anonymous on a daily basis and mm. they get sober and have multiple years of sobriety. That wasn't necessarily my story. You know, I got I had to have the hammer come down on me in order for that to happen. And that hammer came down whenever my dad was finally, after multiple years of enabling, said enough is enough. Now, I don't know where he was tipped off that that was the right thing to do. Uh, I don't know. I, I just don't know what made him do that. But it was ultimately the decision that saved my life because he did that. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but here's my thing: is did you think to yourself, oh, it's, I'm just gonna go through this bull crap, and and then he'll, then it'll be cool. He'll let me back in. I'll be back at the bar in a couple months. Is that what you thought on that plane? Mm, yes and no. I Ooh. thought I was going away for about sixty days. Uh huh. Yeah. And then I was gonna come back, and I didn't really know. I didn't know what was happening. Uh. I knew I was going to treatment. I didn't know if it was, uh, I didn't know I was quitting drinking forever. Ah. That, if you knew that, would you have not done it, been less likely to do it? I don't know. Huh. I, I, honestly, I don't That's got to scare people because that's such a normal part. It's like somebody telling me you're, you're never going to wear shoes again. I was like, what do you mean never wear shoes again? What? It's probably worse than that. It's just such a normal part of your life. It's yeah. like, how can you be so – I'm not going to do anything that's that disruptive to my <laughs> life, ignoring the fact that alcohol is probably the most dis- disruptive thing in your life. I, I just got to think that – here's what I think that. If I were to say, hey, you're going to treatment tomorrow, you're going to quit drinking forever, they'd be like, oh, bull I am not doing that. That is what people with a problem do, and I don't have a problem. Well, that's people that are in denial. Yeah. You know? I mean, you weren't I weren't in denial anymore. No, I wasn't in denial at that point. I mean, my gosh, the three weeks prior to me going to treatment, I had totally. I know, wrecked you know, your car and. Yeah, I mean, I knew I had a problem. And that wasn't, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a saying that people go to meetings, that the people that go to meetings are the people that have problems. Yeah, yeah. You know, and people go I to mean, that's true. Yeah. You know, I, ultimately it is true. Like, People don't go to the, go to treatment. They don't go to into AA if they can't buy into the fact that they have a problem. And I say buy into the fact that they have a problem. I mean that sounds kind of like a sales pitch, but sometimes it is, you know. And if my dad hadn't said, "Look, this is it. You got to go," I don't know how long it would have taken. I could have ended up dead. It could have yeah, been that very fine. next day. I could have wrapped my car around a tree and yeah, killed myself or. Killed Somebody other else. family or who knows. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, you know, the that decision was ultimately the, the decision that set me up for, for where I'm at today, you know, whether. So this whole podcast, this whole show is about change the world around you, but change the world within you. So what was changing? And I don't believe we can be successful at changing the world around us without going first inside of ourselves. So what was it? You're all sitting on a plane. Were you still buzzing a little bit or you were, I mean, yeah, just. No, it was my first treatment. It was my first time in treatment. So um, Mm. I actually. Did you order a drink on the plane? Nope. Oh. And for the longest time, it's funny. I wish I, I wish I had, 
Oh, really? Even yeah. In, in sobriety? Yeah, I kind of wish thought, I did yeah, because, I you know, when I went hurrah. into treatment, when I went into treatment, I, uh, when I, when I got there, I blew a zero zero. Mm. I didn't have any alcohol in my system. Mm. I had benzos in my system mm. because I was taking a lot of the benzos because I, I was withdrawing from the yeah. alcohol because it had been, well, I landed in Jacksonville, Florida at like one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And the last drink that I had had was probably two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. So I was, by that time I was, I was withdrawn and you know, I had yeah. benzos in my system now. So did you have extras with you just to make sure like, no, I good. took them all before I got on the plane, you oh. know, and I, I passed out on the plane and oh. I got, and I got the treatment. But when I was there every, you know, I was, so here I am, I'm 26 years old and I'm in treatment with a bunch of kids. I feel yeah. like, you know, they were 20. Yeah, mom and dad. Years old yeah. asking me, "What are you in here for?" Yeah. Well, what do you mean? I'm I'm alcohol. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, really. What do you mean? And then I find out that the the majority of them are in there for heroin, mm-hmm. opiates, yeah. oxies, oxies, you yeah. know, whatever you name it. And very few were actually in there for alcohol. And the few that were in there were for uh, with alcohol were um, you know, in their 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. and right. I remember one guy asked me, "Would you blow when you came in?" I said, "A zero zero," uh, and he laughed at me. Yeah, and that, I was like, well, "What are you laughing at?" Yeah, <laughs> you know? he's like, "I blew a point two two whatever whenever I came in here," and I'm like, "Well," but it was my first time in treatment, so I didn't really know. I thought I had to go in there like sober, you know. Um, that was a offshoot, though. What what was the original question? I wanted to know mentally what you were going through because um, you can't change the world around you till you change the world within you. Yeah. So you're sitting on that plane, and uh, I'm just wondering, like, oh, is it clicking? Are you like determined? Are you starting? no? Okay. So when I get it, when I'm when I'm at the airport, uh, ultimately when I get out of the car to walk into the airport, your dad I, drove you. My dad drove yeah. me. I started bawling. Really? I started bawling my eyes out. I'm getting out of the plane. I'm about to walk into the airport, and I'm about or get to- out of the car. Or yeah, I got yeah, out of the, the car, car walking, in, walking yeah. into the airport. I'm crying. I don't know what really? what's about to happen. I'm about to get on this plane and go into go go to treatment. I've never done this before. Scared, fear, yeah, a lot of fear, yeah. You know, just mentally, just you'd never looked into treatment. You never any no. friends who went through. You nope. didn't have any idea of what it was. No clue. Involve. I had Probably absolutely best. no clue. Oh yeah, I had no. I had no opinions about it outside of what I had saw on online. I did have a brief moment where I was able to go on their website. Right. And now, of course, the website makes it look like, oh, we go horseback riding, jet skiing, it'll be fun, good times. Hey. Yeah, and it was nothing of the sorts. <laughs> oh, really? No, nothing. Five-star chef, horseback riding, which was legitimately something sure. they said cool. they had. And, it, and you know now it is beneficial. It is, but yeah. yeah. But if they have it, no, they didn't have that. They didn't have everything that they had said that oh, they had. You know, right, It's right. it's a marketing thing. You yeah. Know? And, I, and I got sold. But- with that being said, it was it was I've I've been in a lot of treatment centers, not as right as a I've only went through treatment once, but uh, I've been in a lot of centers, you know, over the years through work and stuff, and yeah. you know, where I went to this day, I believe is the best one that I could have been in, in comparison to what I go to and see today. So, mentally scared, a lot of fear uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen, not sure what the next 45 to 60 days is going to look like. Um, but very, very open-minded, very willing and very kind of, okay, let's, let's figure this out type mentality. 
Here's why I want to really, uh, just so in case you're listening to this right now, you're thinking, ah, I don't know, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm not a drug addict. I just think what Tom's gone through is relatable for all of us, no matter what we're going through. Maybe you're going on a diet. Maybe you're going to finally start going to the gym. Maybe you're going to quit your job and start that business. Maybe it's a podcast. I know uh, quitting Coke and drinking, that's not on par with starting a business. And when it comes, But fear, I want to talk about how you overcame the fear or how you dealt with the fear. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you're scared. You're crying. You don't know what to expect. And you're sitting there. You go through security. You get in that. You're in that place. And this has got to be like this. It's almost like this giant. I envision this mentally, this big moat, this uh, or uh, or the drawbridge coming down, and you're entering into this this dark. Like I have no idea. I'm just entering this place of the unknown. And you're. Uh, that's what I I think it would be for me. I don't know. Was it like that or? Eh. Bad analogy. I mean, I got off the plane, <laughs> and I got off the plane, and in, in, in Jacksonville, Jacksonville right? yeah. and. They had sent a limo to come pick me up. Ah, that's first impressions. That's because you hadn't signed everything yet. To yeah, they wanted all to the get money. yeah, they wanted to get <laughs> the insurance get me, info. They wanted to hook me in. You know? Right, a limo. That's like a nice hook so you in, like me, a fishing yeah, lure. They sent a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was a total bait and switch. Yeah, you know, because ultimately he drives me there. You know, it was about a half hour away from the airport, and I get there, and I, I tell the limo driver politely, "Sir, this isn't where I'm supposed to be," and he said. Your name's Tom, right? I'm like, yeah, Tom Conrad. Yep, that's me. Yes, this is where you're supposed to be. Sir, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. I saw the pictures online, and this is not <laughs> where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, it was totally so he different said, online. You go knock on the front door, and if this isn't the place that you're supposed to be, then I'll, I'll take you wherever you're supposed to be. So I went and I knocked on the front door, and Ultimately, the lady came to the front, and she knew who I was, and she was already ready for me, and I went in, and uh, I kind of just threw my hands up at that point. said, okay, let's do it, you know? Mentally, I was was ready. I was ready to do something. I just, honestly, I didn't know what. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I had no idea. So you were able to just take that baby step then because because I'm thinking like somebody who's, you know, had friends go through it. It's like, oh, it was such hell for them. I'm not ready for this hell. But you didn't know it was going to be hell. You didn't know it was going to be hard. Was it hell? No. It wasn't? No. And the people that say that it is hell is because they ultimately have some sort of, and this is my personal opinion, they have some sort of reservation or they mm. have some sort of... um opinion you know maybe it's somebody that's been through treatment four five six ten times yeah and they just you know they're not ready yet maybe mm. and so maybe each one is hell because they're not willing to embrace it for what it is for what it's worth um but f- from for me in my experience it absolutely wasn't hell the detox was oh yeah the first well, I was in detox for eleven days. They had me in detox. So you and I know from family members. I know it's like you got flu symptoms, right? I mean, oh, tenfold. I w- I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tenfold. That's exactly it. Yeah. You know. And just sick, and you got the flu, you got the fever, you got shakes, you got. My mind's racing. I just literally want to jump off a bridge. So you're asking, just give me one more benzo thing here. Let me give me. Let me just have a. Well, few I was coming I, off. I cut of, the edge. I was right? coming off of benzos and alcohol, so they couldn't give me either of those. They they don't have something else. What is it called? Like um, there's another thing they can take. Ambi- that, or they uh, have um, yeah. Librium. 
Yeah, something like that. They gave me what it's called uh, phenobarbital. Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's something yeah. that they, or some some people that come in with just alcohol, they'll give you uh, like a low dosage benzo, like oh, an Ativan yeah. or something. But uh-huh. I was addicted to benzos. Yeah, so yeah. It would have been counterproductive. Right, right. Trying to get them off of benzos, we can't give them benzos. So they gave me phenobarbital. Nowhere in those 11 days of detox did you mentally, did you deal with, did you say, I want out, I'm done, this is bullcrap, I'm not doing this, I didn't know it was going to be this. No. Not at all. Why? Because I didn't have anywhere to go. Yeah, I guess, yeah. The, I didn't, where was I going to go? Yeah, you couldn't come home. Dad, I'm good, they said no. you need to be here. We hadn't covered the enabling father part yet, but Yeah, no. we'll get to that. Yeah, let's talk I, about that. That. I, that was not an option. Dang. All right. So you get through the 11 days and then you go in... Um, are you? Are you? What? What? What'd you do? What, what? What was the journey like on that? And and I know that a lot of uh, you know, a lot of self self uh, reflection. You know, therapists you, or group therapy. Did know? you find out there was a reason why you were seeking this out? Did you? Was there I didn't find that out until later. Much later, years later, or months later. After after my initial treatment. Yeah, it was after. So I did treat. I did. I did a total of forty-five days inpatient mm-hmm, treatment. Yeah, yeah, six weeks, and that was. Um, it wasn't during then that I that I, that things started clicking. That was only a. That was like a safety bubble. That didn't do anything for me really. It just kept me dry. Yeah, it kept me dry for forty-five days. Helped me get gain some weight back. You yeah, know, get yeah. kind of my bearings back. Um. And did some very minimal, very minimal therapy, you know, as far as, uh, you know, some family dynamic stuff. I started to, that's when I started to learn a little bit about the inner workings of addiction and what it looks like and how to prevent relapses and coping skills and what a trigger looks like and so on and so forth. But I didn't really get into the meat and potatoes of why until, um, until after I left there, and then I continued. I continued intensive doing intensive outpatient. I continued therapy. doing intensive outpatient yeah. therapy afterwards, and yeah. I continued to do that for about six months. So I did a total from day one, and I did a total of about seven, seven, eight months of intense therapy. Yeah, and you know one of the things I noticed you haven't mentioned you've talked about enabling father. I want to jump into that. You haven't talked about your mom. What's your? Where's your mom in your life? She's gone. She's out of the picture. My mom left when I was two. Ah, See, was Elena, this part of it? Yeah, yeah, this is part of it, and this is something that I learned over the course of my therapy and stuff. And honestly, it's something that I still am working through today. Yeah, she left like went off to just went with somebody else and just left the family. And... Yeah, yeah, she basically abandoned me and my dad when I was. Two. I've never been in your pictures in the pictures since then. Have you ever uh-uh. sought her out or any of that? And you joined, I met her twice. Her? Oh, you did. I met her twice, very briefly. I have a sister. Uh huh. Who so, went with her? Yep. Or came along later? No, she was. Uh, my sister, I believe, was one. Oh, my sister's mom. a year younger than me. Oh, so you're two. Your sister's one. Your mom kind of just said, oh, "I got to take care of her." So I'm bringing. Yeah, her and with she me. left, and she went to Arizona, and she figured you, could, your dad, could take care of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't need me. He's not, you know. All yeah. right, so so this this plays into it. This abandonment. I mean that. Yeah, the, I mean that. Of course, that plays into it. Yeah. And at first, I didn't really buy into that because she wasn't a part of my life ever. So it's really hard for me to imagine that something that happened at two years old is affecting me 
Yeah, you don't think that you need yeah. something that you've never felt you needed. Or right. if, if you've never had something, you don't know that you needed it. Right. Right? Yeah. So I bet you this played also into the enabling father because now there's guilt and I got to do everything for my son and I feel bad for him. His mom left us and I got to make his life the best it can be. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, so you said he bought you cars and, and yeah. took care of you. and, and My dad uh, gave me everything I ever wanted. Physically. For physically, yeah. For and emotionally? Was it good emotional support? Emotionally, yeah. I mean, you know, it wasn't anything. I, I, honestly, I can't, I don't have anything bad to say. Yeah. I mean, he gave me, he did the best with what he could. He was a single father raising me. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, he provided for me. He, he was well off and, you know, gave me everything I wanted, taught me everything that I know. And um, he just didn't know. He didn't know what he was doing ultimately was was destroying my life. Yeah, and I, and I realize that you say that not like you're upset with your dad. No, just, you don't not at know. all. It's like it's like not not taking care of the rust on your cars and you're not like you're not taking a hammer to your car. You're just not dealing right. with the thing that you don't realize under the surface there's rust right. tearing this thing apart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think I mean, that that's, that's, very good that's important to say because this is not, oh, is your dad messed up. Your dad was a bad guy. No. It's like, uh, yeah. So so then tell me what made him an enabling father. <sighs> okay, well, <clears throat> like I said, he gave me everything I wanted. If mm-hmm. I wanted it, I I got it. Um and it was something that he just he just did for me, you know. So mm-hmm. and materialistically, mm-hmm. you know, I always had a new car. Yeah. Now, granted, we worked at car dealerships and we got good deals on cars and stuff. So I always drove a brand new car. If I wanted a new set of golf clubs, I got a new set of golf clubs. If I wanted this, if I wanted that, he always got it for me. So I was spoiled, you know. And I'm very open in saying it. Um. It 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 really was detrimental. I mean, I I didn't have a, the value of a dollar, you know, because he gave me everything I wanted. But know? there's people who've had things given to them and provided and it didn't mess them up. Why would it mess you up? Mm. What's the difference with you? Well, I mean, that's just so I guess I, I could say that that probably wasn't part. That was part of the enabling because yeah. I didn't have to do anything for myself. Uh, I had him doing things for me. But yeah. the enabling came whenever the drinking was um the drinking started becoming an issue and rather than nipping it in the butt at an early age he didn't know better i didn't know better obviously most parents don't know better he just kind of let it go mm-hmm. you know he's a kid he's a yep. teenager you, you know do it now he 20s, did he did yeah. try and he did he successfully he got me away from some of uh, some friends of mine at, at around 16, 17 years old. I was hanging out with kids that were definitely headed down the wrong path. And he did what he could then, and he got me away from them. And one of them in particular is serving a life sentence in prison. Mm. So he did do well on that. Yeah. He got me away from certain specific people, but I was always still rebellious. You know, mm-hmm. and I kinda, yeah. When I got my driver's license and I got my first car that my dad bought me, you know, it was kind of, you know, I go and do my thing. My dad does his thing. We don't really bother each other much, and he buys me what I want, and I stay out of his hair. He stays out of mine, and we just kind of go on, you know, and ultimately that happened for a really long time. Now, he he 
he met somebody when I was seven. Mm. He's still with her to this day. You like? Did you get yeah. along with her? You like her? Well, at the beginning, no. Because uh, so, and took, that played took him away. Yeah, yeah, and that played a lot into it as well. I rebelled because here, here yeah. comes somebody stepping into my into our life, me and my dad, who we've established and developed over the years, and here she comes and she's going to take part of him away. So you're over here like dad. Over I'm here, over here. Me, hey, yeah. hello. I'm yeah, over here. Doing whatever it takes. Doing whatever it takes. And then, so when I get my license at 16 years old, you know, I had friends and stuff and we hung out and everything, you know, but it was kind of like, I can do what I want. Yeah. You know, Felt free. Yeah. Your dad. I was, it was very free spirited. Did household. he think you were a good kid? Did yeah. he trust you? Cause it's like, ah, he stays out of trouble. He's a good kid. Yeah. Yeah. And I was. I mean, realistically, I was. I didn't. I played sports and I did all those yeah. things, you know. So on the surface, nobody, the neighbors wouldn't look like, oh man, that Conrad kid, he's trouble. No, nope. It'd be like he. This was a model, good stand-up kid. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it was. I didn't steal from anybody. I didn't do anything that was out of the ordinary. Yeah, you know. But as time as time yeah. got went on, you know, I just started getting more and more into into partying and stuff. Do you think and, there was a trigger that? Now, I know you talk in recovery about triggers, but was there something, was there some some line you crossed at some point mentally? Like a threshold? Yeah, that took you to that place. Was there a mental line? Mm, I don't think so. Just slow progression. It was a slow, slow progression. Yeah. Started out social, ended, it ended in a, like I said before, I was in survival mode. So this is a great lesson if you're listening. This is what this is something that I'm listening to this. I'm thinking, man, that's the way it is in life. You know, we we just man, we don't make any noticeable decision to go down the wrong path. We just make a notice. We just make a non-noticeable decision to take one more step in that direction, and that's not something that that stands out to us. It was you can't say, oh yeah, it was the day I decided to go hang out with Johnny or whatever. It, it was just, eh, just a couple of decisions, and this is just leading us. So we, so we do this in life, even in less monumental circumstances. Like I said, we do this when we're not getting physically fit, when we're not dealing in relationships right. We're just not conscious. We're not saying I'm going to screw up my relationship, but we're just taking a non-consequential step in that direction. Over and over. And each one is just doesn't, eh, it's not, I didn't do anything wrong. It's just, but all of a sudden, bam, here you are. Yeah. Cars totaled, DUI and a rental car from work, no job, no house, nothing. Yeah. And you, there's nothing that you would say got you there. It's just so important for us to remember that. Not that we need to be paranoid in life, like, oh, crap, I got to make sure I'm making, always making the perfect decision. Yeah. But we do need to be cognizant of which direction am I pointed. Right. Not which way did I go. Not did I make a leap across a ditch. It's which direction am I pointed. And if I take one even tiny step in that direction, I'm making a mistake. Right. Yeah, that's that's important distinction, I think. Yeah, and that's that was the direction that I was heading for the longest time. Just to go back to the enabling father. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So it was um, the reason he was so enabling and he didn't understand and know was, you know, I was I was, it got to the point where I was coming home drunk every single day. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. I'm coming home. I'm driving. I'm getting behind the wheel. Yeah. And I'm going and I'm driving home. And my dad is there and he knows that I'm coming home and I'm driving drunk but 
He never did anything about it. Mm-hmm. On a surface level, he did. He thought he did what he thought he would. Uh, he did what he knew best. And every now and again, he would take my car away from me, mm-hmm. or he would do this, or he would do that. You know, yeah. uh, whatever. Fill in the blank. It wasn't, but it wasn't consequential. Yeah. Um, and that went on for a long time. I remember getting into screaming matches with him when I would come home drunk. And ultimately, the next day, I would just do the same thing. So there wasn't any real reason for me to stop. Mm-hmm. I knew I knew going into it, okay, my daddy's going to be in a bad mood when I get home. And I'll yeah. just deal with it whenever it happens, you know. But ultimately, there was no real reason for me to quit. Because I still was getting everything that I wanted. I had my shelter. I had food on the table. I didn't have to pay them rent. I did, I still had my friends. I had all these things. I you know, everything was there. So, why stop? You know, it wasn't really a problem. You know, I, I remember hearing, um, and I can't remember exactly who the person was, but I remember him saying that I had two parents in my office and they were concerned about their child. They were concerned about their child and um, he was just drinking too much, drugging too much. He was just partying. This is now today as a facilitator. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, this this guy, I I can't remember exactly who he is, but uh, it it doesn't matter. It just makes a valid point that... Here's these parents in the office in front of them, and they've been coming week after week. And ultimately, what happens is, is these, you know, it's ultimately about their son. Mm. Well, the therapist says, well, let me ask you something. Where's your son at right now? And they say, well, what do you mean? Where's he at right now? He's at the, he's at the ski, he's out skiing. Mm. And the, and the, the therapist says, well, He's out skiing. You guys are in here. It sounds like you guys are the ones that have the problem, not him. And when that happened, that that hit home to me. They have they're the ones that person, that son is causing more problems for them, right? And he's out skiing, hanging out with his buddies, doing his thing, drinking, ha- you know, living life. Comes home, Nothing, no consequences, no nothing. But meanwhile, week after week after week, here's these parents coming into this therapist saying, our kid's a total mess. Yeah. Well, is the kid a mess or are you guys the mess? And when you figure this out and you figure out what you guys need to do with him, then that's maybe what he needs in order to get the help that he needs. Because right now he doesn't, he doesn't have any consequences. And ultimately, what happens is the parents understand that we've been enabling our son to do this the whole entire time. And until we stop enabling our son from going out and making these decisions, right, until we say, listen, Johnny, if you're going to continue to make these decisions, you're going to make them not under our roof anymore. You can go somewhere else and make them. But you're not going to do it here until we can make that and make that decision and actually uphold that decision. He's not going to stop. And so ultimately what happens is they say they say to their son, Johnny, you know what? You're just heading down a path that we don't approve of and doesn't mean that we don't love you. 
And it's because we love you so much and we want these things for you in the worst way that we, this is the decision that we have to make, hoping that it's going to, you're going to understand why we're making this decision. Kind of follow me? Yeah. Yeah. So you, so ultimately, Johnny says, you know what? I don't have a place to live anymore. They're not paying for my cell phone bill anymore. They're not paying my car payment anymore. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. What am I going to do? But, then, but Tom, it's hard. These Now I'm going to play devil's advocate. Yeah. A little bit of mm-hmm. a lot of truth. Uh, it's hard these days to make it as a young person. It's expensive to live. Uh, you need you know a lot. of. I heard a study that's or a report said uh, like like 30 percent of people under 30 live at home still. Yeah. Because, you know, back at home with mom and dad or yeah. whatever. College graduates even. Because it's hard these days to make it to get on your feet, and you got right. especially yeah, if you got student yeah, yeah. loans, or if you got whatever, you're a single mom, or you, you're, uh, you know, you don't have a degree, so you don't really have one of those, you know, jobs that can support you. So, it, isn't it loving? And I know the answer to this, but it's loving to to like just provide them just enough to get them to the point where they can take off on their own. But yeah, they're partying a lot, and they're not, you know, they're not paying the bills. I am, and. I'm making sure they got food, and I got to make sure it's my kid. I don't want my kid to starve, so uh, I'm not paying their car payment, not paying their insurance. Oh, they don't have insurance, uh, so so this is what I'm like. We disguise it as love. We disguise yeah. it as like oh, I'm just loving. I love my kid. Who's going to abandon their kid? I don't abandon my kid, right? And I would challenge any parent that has that. And I, I'm, I'm, I have a four month old. Oh yeah. So I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna have these. I'm oh, gonna have yeah. to do this. Yeah. I would challenge any parent to, to say, are you really abandoning your kid, or are you? So where are they gonna go the first night? You're like, that's it. I'm done. It doesn't wraps over. You're out. What do you mean? You're gonna really? You're gonna? So here you go. You really, yeah. really, you're just yeah. gonna let me go out on the street? Yeah, yeah, I've told you over and over again, you can't do this. You're not gonna destroy the family. You're making bad decisions. You refuse to make the right decision. I'm done. You're out. As of now, or you know, I would be inclined to say in 30 days, <laughs> right? <laughs> like yeah. you're gonna go into uh-huh. recovery in 30 days. Uh, same kind of issue, right? Yeah. Uh, so, 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 okay. Seriously, so what? I'm just, and then phone calls. I have nowhere to go. I'm out here at the corner. I'm I'm just a young kid. I'm I'm 22 and yeah. 23. I'm I'm here in the corner. And seriously, it's gonna leave me out here. It's raining, Dad. You're just gonna leave me out here? Are you? You want to answer? I want to know what you'd say. I would say, first off, yes, I would leave you. Second off, I. Uh, I've been doing this for a long time now since being sober and helping, you know, other parents and families and, you know, um, you know, even the afflicted ones, the addicts themselves Mm -hmm. understand more about this and how to overcome it. Few and far between is there an addict or an alcoholic or somebody of the nature that doesn't have resources. So if I say to you, Johnny, get the heck out. Nine times out of ten, Johnny's not going to be out in the rain. He's not going to be in the snow. He's not going to be underneath a bridge. I'm thinking more Judy than Johnny. Judy is going to be. <laughs> Judy is going to have resources. Good She's good ones. Gonna, maybe not. Maybe not good ones. Yeah. But ultimately, you 
the parents or not maybe you in particular, but the sure, parents right. are cannot be those resources. Because if the parent is the resource, then how is the child ultimately going to end up being successful? Because there's no consequences. So there's not there's there's no reason. You know what I mean? There's no reason for me at 26 years old when my dad said, you know what, you got to go. The gig's up. Mm-hmm. The gig was up. And so I did my six weeks in treatment. And when I said, okay, I'm ready to go back home, my therapist said, well, you're you're not. You're not going back home. Your dad doesn't want you back home. Oh, even after successful Even after treatment? successful treatment. That's, and you're a star student kind of thing. I'm, 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 you know, I'm the poster child for the treatment center. I did everything that I was asked to. Your dad's getting updates? My dad's getting updates, and what they tell my dad is what's best for your son, which I didn't know at the time, and he didn't know at the time what's best for your son is that he not come home and that he goes and he does some sort of aftercare continues to get more therapy, so on and so forth. And because even after 45 days, my dad said, nope, you're not. And I wanted to go. I wanted to go home. I really did. But I was open to going to treat, you know, more treatment. Of course, I was going to go West Palm Beach, Florida. Heck, I've never been there. Sure, why not? Yeah. You know, I didn't really have much back in Pennsylvania. Right. So he did just enough. Because of what I, the decisions that I made in that 45 days and the progress that I have made, my dad actually uh, financially helped me for the first month. He paid for my first month to get into a sober living environment. Did they coach him into doing that? They coached him the whole time. So how was that not enable? I guess you're enabling a positive. It's a positive. That's, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's something that is setting me up for success rather Mm -hmm. than setting me up for failure. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what ultimately that's what happens in this cycle of addiction is the one that is addicted until they get sober. They're ultimately set up for failure, you know? Yep. And and call it what it is. It could be within the household. It could be within, you know, their, their relationships and, or, um, if they're even, it doesn't even have to be your child. It could be a married couple, you know, a husband and a wife, and the wife is the alcoholic, but the husband doesn't want, doesn't know what to do with her. It's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. Like, okay, this is what you need to do. And if you're going to continue to act in this way, then these are the consequences. The consequences have to outweigh the addiction or else it's just not going to work. You said, and I'm going to step back a little bit, sorry for that, but you said when you got out of the car, your dad dropped you off at the airport and you went up, you just started bawling. Yeah. Have you talked to your dad? What'd he do at that moment? Have you asked him what he did? Then? Yeah, no, I, I, he, um, he, he, he didn't, he was scared, you know, he didn't really know, but you know, my dad was, has been, was he calloused at that point? You think hardened? Um, he just wanted what was best for me, Yeah, you know, and my dad has always been the type of guy that was, you know, he basically grew up on, not on his own, but I mean, he, at 16 years old, he hitchhiked to Texas and like to go work on oil rigs. You know, he was always very independent, didn't need anybody. And 
expected the same of me. And ultimately, you know, I ended up being the same way. Now I'm married and have a child and stuff. So, yeah. Um, so, all right, cool. I, I, I was just trying to figure this out from that, both sides of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to relate it to people who are listening, if you're listening right now, trying to relate it to you in the little decisions that you're maybe not as big as going into treatment for alcohol and drugs, but just whatever it is you're trying to do. I've said this a few times, whether it's get into shape, start a business, start a new venture, uh, whatever it is. I mean, you're going through the same emotions, just maybe on a different level, maybe on the same level. It depends on what your fears are, you know, what it is you fear. You fear, you know, giving up alcohol and your social life yeah. is normal to you. Yeah. Somebody else fears giving up a steady income or fears giving up how good cheesecake tastes or whatever, you know, that's, that's, oh, it sounds good. Huh? Cheesecake. You're like, oh man, cheesecake. Why'd you say that? That's my newest addiction. <laughs> Not just cheesecake, sugar. Uh, sugar. Right. Sugar. Yeah, all the sweet snacks. All right, man. So let's talk about that now, and maybe you can relate that too, because I think people would relate to this if you talked about sugar and maybe that. Um, yeah. So now you go into treatment, and what's the first step in the 12 steps? You said it to me before. It's uh, We're powerless over, well, I, I do a, work in AA program, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the first step is we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Because of the alcohol? Yeah. That's, now you could take that word alcohol out and fill it with whatever, whatever word. Sugar? Yeah. Say it was sugar. We admitted that we were powerless over sugar and that our lives had become unmanageable. Right. I, is, it, is it true for you, you think? Probably. Really? Yeah. Sugar for me has been 10 times harder than than alcohol. And the, and the sad thing is, is that you can relate this. I can relate this to the, the behaviors the same exact way as alcohol. So I've become powerless to the thrill of shopping and yeah, my life's absolutely. become unmanageable. I've become, I'm powerless. Shopaholics, to, yeah. To, I'm powerless to the drive for success and my life's yeah, become Yeah, workaholism. I work a lot of hours, and so I'm thinking of that for me. I'm yeah. trying to just be self-reflective, too. I'm not, yeah, absolutely. I never have these false pretenses that, ah, I got it all figured out. Well, and I would never call you a workaholic, but oh, maybe uh, you are. I don't know. You have Follow to. me tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but so, yeah, so this is what I'm trying to get people to understand this. So, what, so, so it sounds like that first step that I'm powerless to alcohol and my life's become unmanageable. I don't know if I said that right, but it sounds like you were at that point sitting in the airport. You had accepted that one there. Yeah. I mean, for the most part. Now there's, you know, listen, we could have we could have probably a year's worth of podcasts on just the 12 steps and have a successful show every single time. But ultimately, yeah, I knew at that point in time that and that was a step one for me. I was powerless. Um, my life was unmanageable. That was that was becoming more and more. A parent. A parent. When you totaled your car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got a DUI and lost your job, Mm -hmm. lost your house. So was that part of it that that it has to become like smack you in the face like my life's unmanageable? Boom. Like I have no house. I have no car. I have no job. I have no friends except the old man sitting at the stool next to me at the bar. Yeah. You know, and he's no friend. I mean, I don't know. It's it's, that's going to be more on a personal. All right. You know, gotcha. everybody's different. So what do you think? Uh, what do you think? Because I here's my thing. I think the 12 steps are so powerful that I wish normal, quote, I'm doing finger quotes, normal, because I hate that. It's like nobody's normal, right? Yeah. Um, but what non-alcoholics should go through it. And I yeah. say that knowing that I haven't gone through it and so I'm kind of a hypocrite. Actually, I am a hypocrite in that regard. But um, was there something in those 12 steps that you 
that was really, really difficult for you? Was yeah. there one that really yeah. hung you up? Well, so the fourth step is we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And that's the fourth step of Alcoholics Anonymous. And a searching me- and moral uh, of searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Yeah. Ah, that was hard for you. Yep. You weren't introspective. You weren't a guy who thought. I didn't want to look. You. I didn't want to look inside. Ah, I love this. Yeah. I didn't want to. Now, None I, of us do. No. Well, I mean, not. That's why we try to change all the crap around us, yeah. hoping that it'll make us happy. Oh, of That's course. You, oh, one Trying more to fill the void. I'll be happy inside. Trying to fill the void. One more pill and I'll feel calm inside. One yeah. more drink and I'll have peace inside. One yeah. more g- fill. No, not fill it, but one more, like, you know, whatever. Just a, one, one, one more, one night stand. And I'll feel meaningful inside. Yeah. But it really was the reverse is what this whole show is all about. It's that reverse. Well, yeah. And that's what the, that's what the, that's what the steps are designed for. Yeah. You know, they're all put, they're put in order for a reason because, you know, when you do the first step, it's not, you don't go from step one to step six to step four to step eight. Mm -hmm. You do them in order and you do them in order for a reason. And by the time you get to the 12th step, I mean, the 12th step is having had a spiritual awakening mm. as a result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Mm-hmm. So the whole basis behind the 12 steps is it's it's more of um, it's an internal it's an internal relationship with yourself and a higher power of your understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I choose to call God. Right. Right. You know, but it's 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 understanding that I'm not God and that I don't know what's best for me when it comes to these. Yeah. When Sorry. it comes to these decisions. Okay. Um, now, do you think that you said because we're not God and um, we don't have the answers? Do you think somewhere under all the crap there is the truth within us? Setting aside the religious dogma that you hold on to. Because we all have it. I mean. Do I think that I think that so, we're all born with a, a set of morals that we, uh, as human beings, have to uphold? But as you went by. through that journey through the twelve steps, and you washed off all that garbage and life stuff and all yeah. that, and you dealt with stuff, and you went on, um, do you feel that um, somewhere underneath all that junk, you can tap into? Uh, some might say Christ within me, um, Christ, you know, through me. That there's no way that. Um, or whatever your religious beliefs are, that 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 truth is inside of you, that pure yeah. God within. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I rely on on a daily basis to be sober. Not an external force. No. Ah, good. No. All right, cool. Here's what I want. So I am gonna we're gonna wrap this up here, but I love this because I do think there's so much we can understand from somebody who's gone through recovery and tre- I think I think people in recovery are living better lives than people who've never gone through it who don't have drug and alcohol problems. Right. I think it's it's, it's just a better way of living. Yeah. In general, and I challenge anybody that and you don't necessarily have to go through the 12 steps, but I challenge everybody to I'm 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 really big into not buying into what society has carved out for us. Yeah. What we consider to be the the standard, you know, like what your show's all about, finding it on an internal. Yeah. You know, money isn't it for me. If I got a Bentley, man, then I'm going to feel like yeah, I'm successful. Yeah, that's that's not that doesn't fly with me anymore. It used to. Yeah. 
not anymore. No, I mean, I don't. I've I've come across people that make you know, and we all know it. Filthy rich people that are just miserable. Yeah, you know, because they haven't dealt with the internal. They're yeah. looking to affect the internal with the external. And so, what do you what do you do now that is gives you meaning? Um, what do I do now that gives me meaning? I uh, I'm I'm readily available to to people. Are you a sponsor for somebody or a number of people? Um, at this very moment, no. Okay. No. Are you looking for one? No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> Get out of here. Write my number down. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> yeah. I and I say that. No, it's it, I deal you know, with tension with humor, by the way, in case you didn't notice. When there's tension, I psh, try to say something funny. Oh, really? Not always funny. <laughs> try it. Give it a that shot. was funny. That was good. <laughs> so no, I don't sponsor anybody right now. And mm. you know, some people a lot of the AA big book thumpers would say, Oh, you should be sponsoring some you know, you need sponsees, you know, and ultimately they're right. But honestly, I'm about so so the question is, what do I yeah, where do you find your meaning? Where do I find my meaning? Today? I find my meaning right now in relationships with people, making myself available to people when when needed, um, helping people get through this in a manner that is right for them. Everybody's different. I don't believe in cookie-cutter recovery. Yeah. I believe that everybody is different, yeah. and everybody's has different... Um, Likes and dislikes and stuff like that. So, I mean, I just, you know, helping people get through it. And I have different, multiple different ways of going about it, you know. So, nutritional is mm-hmm. a big thing. Yeah. You know? Fitness is a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, adventure is yeah. a very big thing. I'll be the first to tell you if you can't have sobriety or if you can't have fun in sobriety, what's the point in being sober? Well, I don't think that you're not destroying the people around you. Well, yeah, but I mean the the we have we have fun. So if what I what my idea of fun is is going to include the relationships of right, the, the, yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. So yeah, of course, on a surface level, yeah, it's the fact that you're not destroying. So there there are people like that. They're called dry drunks. Mm. There's people that don't drink, right? That have had a major drinking problem or a drugging problem or whatever the problem is, and they just don't do it anymore, but they're considered dry because they're still the most angry, mm. bitter. Oh man, we got. I'm gonna bring you back. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole other. That's <laughs> Maybe a whole that's other your show. show. So Tom, yeah, so, I I'm, I think Tom should be doing his own podcast, and so uh, maybe that's you got so much stuff you could journey through, and so many resources yeah. and interviews well, with I've, people. Yeah, I've thought about it, and maybe I will. Yeah, that'd be fantastic because I think somebody who's gone through where you, what you've gone through, have, yeah. like I did, tried to do in this talk with you, this conversation is um, is relate it back to just little stuff in life because we just don't realize this stuff uh, that the, the little things are no different than the big things. They're just on yeah. a different scale, you know? Building a dollhouse is a lot like building a house. I mean, it's got yep. walls, you got, you know? It's it's just a different scale is what you're doing. So now I always end every episode with, may your reach always extend beyond your grasp. And something my dad wrote on my birthday card when I was um, 18. What's beyond your grasp? What's next? What are you reaching for? Um... Because you've grasped sobriety. You've grasped recovery. You've got to solve. It doesn't mean like, I know in recovery you're always in recovery, but it doesn't seem like for you it's become normal. So what's beyond that? Where can you stretch to? 
I just want to be as well-rounded and well-versed as possible. Is that a stretch for you? Yes. And the reason I say that is because I tend to put all my eggs in one basket. And when I achieve that, then I move on to the next thing. Mm. And what I need to do that is a stretch for me is be more, more balanced, Ah. you know? So there's areas in your life that you think you've, you've neglected because you were chasing something else. mm -hmm. Yeah. I think me too. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I think everybody, everybody does to some degree. Not, not everybody admits it. No. Not everybody's ready to. No, not everybody is, you know, but that's something, you know, and, uh, I just want to be a, you know, a resource for anybody that, that wants to be sober. So is there a way somebody could reach out to you if they wanted more information? Now, Tom, you work. Is it okay if we say you work at Rock Recovery Center? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Rock Recovery Center. It's um, So Rock. we're in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. It's uh, adventure-based, fitness-based, nutritional-based. Pick you up in a limo and take you to some shady motel. No, nah, we ain't about park. that. We'll, oh, we'll okay. pick you up from the airport. Yeah. And, you know, as a uh, friend would. As a friend would. Right. Inpatient treatment. So- you know, the the 45 days that I did is essentially what we do. And then, but we also have the intensive outpatient portion mm. after that. Um, so if somebody comes to us from day one and they can stay as long as they want, as long as they're proven successful. Yeah. Um, and that's Rock Recovery Center. It's adventure-based, nutritional-based, fitness-based. We have our own CrossFit gym mm. on our clinical site. It's a 3,000-square-foot CrossFit gym. That's a part of our program. Dude, it was a garage of six months ago. It was a garage went, as yeah, of six months when ago. When I went there. Yeah, now it's it's a completely That's built awesome. out. Yeah, because our success is is People are coming to us and they're getting sober. Yeah, awesome. and and that's what I that's what I, that's what we're about. We're about going back to the fun and sobriety part. Mm-hmm. That's what we're about. Yeah, you know the the traditional treatment model. Let's have you sit inside four walls. Let's have you processing your feelings and doing relapse prevention, coping skills, family dynamics, all inside four walls, 25 hours a week. Yeah. We're not about that. We do all those things, but we do paddle boarding. We do kayaking. We do ropes courses, rock climbing, CrossFit, equine therapy, uh, snorkeling. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, we're, we're in. Less therapy, less conversation during the snorkeling, I imagine. Yeah, no, it's all, you know, it's, it's uh, more processing. Like, yeah, pro- <laughs> processing. <laughs> right. And then, yeah, so. Just- That's awesome, man. I've been out there when you go kayaking and I've seen the ropes course. Yeah. And so it's not just, ah, oh, it's a challenge. It's conversation about when did you feel like you weren't going to make it up that rope? Uh, what what were you processing in your mind? What were you hoping? Would you hoping it just end there? And all those. And I know I'm just not even doing, I'm not a clinician. clinician. Yeah. yeah so right. You got but, the gist of it. Yeah. So That's awesome. Cool. RockRecoveryCenter.com. RockRecoveryCenter.com. You can email me at t.conrad, C-O-N-R-A-D, at RockRecoveryCenter.com. And uh, that's cool. about it. Even if they just have a question like, hey, my kids. Uh... Yeah, if you got a question, I'll be more than happy to answer yeah. it. Leave, uh, even if you have a cell phone number or whatever, I can. Or call you back. Call, call. Cool, man. Text, whatever. I love it. I love what you're doing there. And I, I, you know, I know you. I know Adam who runs, owns Rock Recovery Center, good friend of mine. I'm fascinated. When Tom came into the studio, I said, did Adam warn you I'm going to pick your brain for about two hours? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. It's all right. And then here we are two and a half hours later. So <laughs> awesome, yeah. man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank and you. again, rockrecoverycenter.com or you can email Tom Conrad. It's t.com. 
Conrad, C-O-N-R-A-D, at rockrecoverycenter.com. Cool, thanks. Uh, there you go. I hope, oh man, I love that. Tom's great, isn't he? I hope that was beneficial to you, even if you're not dealing with addictions, if you know somebody who's dealing with it, or maybe you have a family member, something like that. I hope that helps you. I hope that sees a little bit about enabling, a little bit about what fears they're facing, what they can expect. I just really hope that we can all live our best lives possible because addiction doesn't just affect the person who's dealing with it. It affects everybody around them. And I I know I want you to go on that journey with the person you love. I want you to love them. I want you to help them. But I want to make sure you, as well as me, that we're not enabling people. I know it's tough, especially if you're an empathetic person like me. Please reach out to me. Let me know if this affected you. If this episode matters, I want to hear from you. Whether you send an email to me, desmond at pdesmondadams.com, or whether you leave a five-star rating and review in iTunes or iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening to this show, I, I appreciate it. Give me some feedback. I need to know that this mattered. I've never done an interview before. I want to know, should I do more of these? Please, I thank you so much. I want us all to live our best lives possible. I want us all to realize that we aren't going to change that world around us until we focus on changing that world deep within us. And it's not easy, I know. But it's important that we do it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. May your reach always extend beyond your grasp. 